0: issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here, and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, in which I talk to the historian Sarah Churchwell about her book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind, and The Lies America Tells. I chat to Sarah about the mistruths spread by Margaret Mitchell's book, Gone with the Wind, and the film adaptation, where they came from, why they were so readily accepted, and how they fit into America's tendency towards mythmaking, making as well as the lost cause, the treatment of Hattie McDaniel and why Scarlett O'Hara spoke to the women of war-torn Europe. Now, you probably know this already, but just for those who don't, or just as a reminder, there's a bit where Sarah's talking about the Republicans, and you might think, does she mean the Republicans? She does mean the Republicans. Back in the day, the Democrats were the party of the slaveholding South, And it was the Republicans, as Barack Obama liked to remind them, that were the party of Lincoln. Hope you enjoy this. Until next time. Sarah, welcome to the Standard Issue podcast. Oh, Thanks so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this interview since I read your book back in June. And if proof be needed, I actually watched Gone with the Wind for you. And there's not many people on (laughs) earth I would do that for. (laughs) I had actually seen it before as a kid because my nan loved it. But for me, the biggest surprise in watching it again was that I'd actually sat through it the first time because it's really long, really unbelievably long. In fact, it does that thing where it ends halfway through and you think you're over and there's a whole other bit of the film to go. So I wanted to ask you because I know that you did enjoy it the first time that you saw it. And I wondered if you could tell me when that was and sort of the context that was in.
1: I was in a milieu in which people were still enjoying it. So... Mm. We weren't yet challenging it in the ways yeah. that we are now, um, and that's really kind of what my book is about: is the way that this story became so dominant and so unquestioned by such a huge, you know, proportion, not just of the American population but of the world, and how it was championed, you know, and and people identified with it and loved it. It first premiered on um, network television in 1977, and I imagine that's when I first saw it, or maybe just afterwards. I think it aired probably annually at least at the beginning, but you know, as a small kid, you don't really understand programming and stuff. So for me, it would just sort of appear on the television. I remember seeing it when I was quite young. And then it was around kind of when I was maybe 10 or 11. It was on again. And I was just the right age for it to just get me. And I became obsessed with it. I lay awake every night trying to imagine Rhett and Scarlett getting back together as I tried to fall asleep. I said in an early draft of the book that I went into a little more detail about that. And I think now looking back, I was probably triggered because I was actually a child of divorce. And so I think that Rhett walking out was probably just this kind of thing that might, because it was really, it was weird how obsessed I was with his, you know, looking back on it. I think that's odd. That was an odd child lying there (laughs) night after night after night worrying about how Rhett and Scarlet were going to get back together again. I had Barbie dolls and I but wouldn't have Barbie dolls that looked like Scarlet, and I didn't have, you know, hoop dresses. But so I would find these like bits of fabric and try to make them look like hoop dresses and stuff. So, I mean, I was full on, 100 percent standing for one um, event. <laughs> and because of that, you know, you stay interested in something that has that kind of formative yeah. And then I, I, I was always interested as, a, as I got older and as I became a, a critic and a teacher, I got really interested in kind of trying to understand those stories that had been so popular and were so formative and these very highly mythologized and highly iconic stories. And so, you know, I've written about a bunch of, the, you know, either iconic figures or iconic stories. And so Gone with the Wind was always kind of lurking in my head anyway. It's something I wanted to write about because it's kind of part of my imaginative
0: mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned there how popular it is, or or it was, both the film and Margaret Mitchell's book, not just in the US. So I wonder if you can give us an idea of the actual size of it as a cultural phenomenon. One in two people in the UK had seen it at one point? Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. And the same numbers said that they were going in a Gallup poll as the film was coming out. 50% of the American adult population said they were going to go see the film. I mean, it was an absolute phenomenon. They said that it, there there were jokes that in, in the South, every house had two books, the Bible and Gone with the Wind. It was just everywhere. But of course, it wasn't just a Southern phenomenon, um, as I'm saying. So the, the film did a lot to feed that frenzy. The Second World War meant that it hit a very specific moment. Yeah. And it's a story about surviving war. It's a story about resistance. It's a story about living under an occupying army. You know, it was hugely popular with the French resistance. The mm. Nazis banned it as a result. Up until then, they had kind of liked it aspects of it but when they worked out that it was encouraging people to think about resistance they decided that they were going to ban it and yeah and in the u.s you know it was wildly popular as a novel and then the film broke all records it was one of the original blockbusters i mean there were two or three you could say the birth of a nation was really the first Mm -hmm. but and gone with the wind was really the next kind of phenomenon it was you know Epoch making. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew about it. It was a lingua franca. Everybody talked about it and understood it. But it's also a measure of its of its endurance and its influence. I mean, you say you find it, you know, almost unwatchable now. A lot of people say that, you know, in response to this book, or that they can't read it in the same way. I think that our attitudes have shifted drastically mm-hmm. in twenty to thirty years. But it's still a book that sells three hundred thousand copies a year. Wow. Yeah. You know, and now those are numbers that J.K. Rowling would not sniff at. You know? Know. So um, th- That is intense, ongoing popularity. It's still the most popular film of all time or most successful film of all time when adjusted for inflation. In America, Frankly, My Dear, I Don't Give a Damn, which, of course, is Rhett Butler's parting shot, is still the most famous
0: movie quotation of all time. So, you know, it, it, in
1: many ways, it, it has not
0: yet been surpassed. It's interesting you say that about sort of the timing and the war, because when I watched it again, I immediately thought, oh, I can see why my nan loved this. Because she'd come from Ireland, from, from a rural place. So there was a sentimentalisation about the sort of the rural. She was in London, a city that was on fire. You yeah. know, all her men yeah. were away at war and she actually had to deliver a baby for someone during right. the war. It was twins. So no wonder Scarlett yeah. spoke to her. No You're wonder. Exactly.
1: Completely identified with every aspect of it. No, exactly. And you know, I say there's a couple of things there that are that are worth pulling out. One is, as you imply there about this story, is you know, it's not just about anybody surviving war. It's a, it's a story about women on the home front, mm-hmm. and it's an anti-war story. One of the things that hasn't dated about it. Many things have dated about it, as we've been implying. But one of the things that hasn't dated is that it is an anti-war novel that is interested in what happens to civilians in a war and and in an urban environment. So you can understand exactly why people during the Blitz were literally, you know, they were lining up in the morning to watch it in Leicester Square as people were still putting out fires. Around them, they were queuing up for it because exactly. And then they watched Atlanta burn and somebody raise her fist to the sky and say they're not going to lick. me." You know, it's an absolute anthem to defiance and to resilience. Yeah. So that's what I think that's clearly what people respond to in any kind of violent or oppressed situation. It's just the, the problem. As I say in the book, the problem is when you start to look at what the politics that it's resisting and the politics it's upholding, that's the point. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, it's an anti-war film about a war that I think of all wars is probably a war that was worth fighting. Exactly. You know? The only war you can actually get behind it's, is the one that this novel hates. <laughs> it's exactly that. I mean, to give you an indication of how widespread it was, I, I grew up in Newport Pagnell, which is this little town in Buckinghamshire. And we used to go to church and there were two girls. They were, they were twins, lots of twins in this story. And they're the same age as me. They were called Scarlet and Tara. Wow. Yeah, after Gone with the Wind. So yeah. that's in the seventies in a little town in Buckinghamshire. People were naming their children after Gone with the Wind. Oh. There's some other things that I think maybe people who aren't quite as fascinated by this period of history as the pair of us are, um, <laughs> that we might need to explain the concepts to people. So could we maybe start out with the concept of the Lost Cause? And it might be helpful just to give a couple of dates as I yeah. do that, so that people have a sense That'd of.
1: About, right. So as we've said, Gone with the Wind is, is essentially a kind of World War Two era text, but the, the novel came out in nineteen thirty six, so Depression era, and then the film came out at the very end of nineteen thirty nine, actually during the Phony War, and its popularity spread as the war heated up, and then um, eventually through America's entry into it. But it's telling a story about the American 1860s and 1870s, which is when the American Civil War happened. It begins at the very beginning of the Civil War in 1861, as war is declared, Scarlett is 16, and she's living this idyllic life on her father's plantation, where slaves are wonderfully treated, everybody's happy, there's nothing wrong with slavery whatsoever. And then these inexplicable but horrible Northerners come and declare war on the gentle South to strip them of their slaves and out of greed and rapacity, they destroy this way of life as you said at the beginning that's really the kind of end of the first half of the story but then there's a the second half so it's a it's a it's a fall and rise uh, and fall story mm-hmm. uh, in which scarlet loses everything and then rebuilds everything but at very great cost so it's not a simple epic romance where she it's not a fairy tale where she just gets everything that she wants that's it's a much more realistic and and um acidic story than that in that regard anyway in terms of its ideas about romance it takes us through the early 1870s and what historically was the reestablishment the reintroduction of white supremacy in the south after slavery was abolished so although slavery was abolished white supremacism was not racism mm-hmm. was not black people were not um, politically legally socially or economically the equal of white people and and I don't mean that in the terms that they're not that we can see, still see structural racism today and talk about racial inequality or economic inequality. We're talking about a system in, that, was a, that was really slavery in all but name. And they were technically emancipated, but had very, very few mm-hmm. avenues to exercise their freedom. At the same time, the white South had lost this devastating war. And so they began to tell a series of revisionist histories and self-serving mythologies about the war that they had fought, why they had fought it, and how they had come to lose it. And that broad set of mythologies, a propaganda campaign, really became known as the lost cause. And it was a romantic whitewashing of the slaveholding South that said, as I described at the beginning of the story, that said that slavery was great. There was nothing wrong with it. The slaveholders were nice. The Southern way of life was an agrarian idyll. And it was ruined by the industrial North and its greed and what they called its war of aggression. So that idea of the lost cause is that these noble soldiers went to war. Okay, they were doomed to lose, but it was a noble cause. Well, it wasn't a noble cause. They went to war to fight for race-based slavery, not just to maintain it, but to expand it. That was actually what precipitated the war, was the South's determination that as new states came into the union, they would come in as slave states um, and that they would therefore be able to get more land in order to expand their slave empires. And that was what the war was fought over. And they engaged in a disinformation campaign. And that's a really accurate, I'm not being anachronistic I and mean, they wouldn't have used that word, but it's a very accurate description of what they did. It was a deliberate attempt to rewrite history in their own favor and to deny their own responsibility, to, to shrug off any accountability and to insist that everything they did was totally justified and to point fingers at everybody except themselves and that whole complex of ideas that I just described Mm -hmm. in shorthand as the lost cause because you can't say everything that I just said you can't do everything
0: (laughs) to explain this every time you want to talk about it so that's basically what the lost cause refers to I think there's something else we probably need to clarify here and it's the motivation of the north in the war because every so often you know on Twitter I'll see a journalist or a historian say Something along the lines of, if you think the Civil War was about anything other than slavery, you're wrong. And I think that is a reference to the lost cause. But actually, if you're talking about the North, that statement is is incorrect, because at the start, the war wasn't about slavery.
1: Yeah, I would say not that it's incorrect exactly, but it's insufficient. Mm. So it was about slavery, but it was only in a limited and complex way about slavery. So exactly. So Lincoln gave a speech at the beginning of the war in which, uh, actually a series of of statements and declarations in which he said that his sole purpose was to hold the nation together. And if if that meant maintaining slavery, he would do it. And if that meant abolishing slavery, he would do it. But that what he wanted to do was to hold the nation together. And it is true that pro-war sentiment in the North was driven by unionist sentiment, Mm. not by abolitionist sentiment on the whole. But we're making a massive generalization there. But abolitionism was absolutely at the heart of the conflict. As I've said, it was what precipitated the split. And there is a lot of reason to believe in many historians of of Lincoln, um, biographers of Lincoln will will show and say that was politics. Lincoln was playing politics, that that they were going to war to abolish slavery, but that wasn't yet a winning way of framing it. And And unionism was a winning way of framing it. And through the the fight itself and through unionism, they won Northerners over to the cause of abolition as well as the cause of holding the, the nation together.
0: We understand why my nan loved this film. I can understand, you know, why people in the South loved this film. I find it difficult to understand how people who lived in the North loved this film. People whose grandfathers presumably fought in this war on the right side, enjoying a film that perpetuates a lot of myths that really undermine what their grandfather was fighting for. How do you explain that? Yeah, so there was a really
1: complex cultural movement that happened around the question of how do you reunite a country that just fought this bloody civil Mm. war? historians have developed shorthands to talk about this stuff so that we don't always have to explain all of the ins and outs of it. And so this set of ideas is broadly known as as reconciliation. The questions raised by reconciliation, sometimes known as reconciliationism. Mm. And the reason for adding that ism onto it is to suggest the ways in which it it was a project. It was a conscious project that we have to reconcile the country because reconciliation didn't just happen. So what kind of reconciliationist stories do you tell? What kinds of ideas do you start to circulate that will enable these people who were literally murdering each other, you know, on a battlefield yesterday? How do you say that tomorrow we're all going to be brothers again under the same flag? So it's not just a question of how your grandfathers fought. It's about you the next day. Mm. So... What happened was that the people who went to war to uphold slavery were not going to suddenly repudiate it or suddenly discover that they wanted multiracial democracy. And that is very much what did not happen. But by the same token, the North that did not go to war to fight slavery per se was kind of okay with. white supremacism some were, some weren't now we're starting to make generalizations and this is where it gets complicated but there were divisions on the republican side and in the north about how best to to reconstruct to use lincoln's word for it how to reconstruct the nation and there were radical republicans who were pushing for what we would now just call civil rights like but they were like they were out there radicals suggesting that black and white could be equal As an absolute outlier position, right? but there were people who held that position and were fighting for it. But there were many more white people nationally who felt that they were biologically superior to black people. They just didn't believe in slavery, but they didn't believe in racial equality either. And so reconciliation happened not entirely, but largely around white supremacy, where this sense that white people were drawing back together to rebuild the country. And then they just basically threw black people under the bus. You know, they were just like, well, whatever happens to you, you're on your own. We freed you. Yeah. So, you know, literally like Pontius Pilate stuff, like we will wash our hands of this and you guys go sort out your lives and it's not our responsibility because by emancipating you, we did everything we were supposed to do. And so at that point, you start to tell a story about, The war in which nobody was really to blame and slavery just kind of happened. It was a little bit unfortunate, but let's not dwell on the awkward past. And it's not many steps from that before you start thinking that actually it wasn't really that bad in the first place. And then you start to think, well, actually, we were all kind of innocent. Basically, what happens is what we call cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. You don't do the math. You know slavery is wrong, but you also think America is not that bad. And you don't bother to sit there and ask yourself, how can I reconcile the fact that my grandfather fought against? But in my head, the stuff that happened before the war wasn't really that bad. Mm. And and all of the stories are there to stop you precisely from asking that question and from thinking about that incongruity. There was a re-education program around the turn of the 20th century around the role of the Civil War. And and it was about the moral cause of the North. It it certainly wasn't just shrugging that off. It was about the importance of the abolition of slavery. and, And it was what turned Lincoln into a national hero in a way that he hadn't been in the immediate aftermath of the war. That was when he started to become really, really mythologized as the great president of the United States. So there were certainly ways in which America was telling a story about the moral cause of the war. But at the same time, the war was about slavery. They weren't reframing it as a story about racial equality because that would have meant they would have to start examining what was happening in the South and start thinking about Jim Crow. They compartmentalized it, right? And and it sounds just bizarre to say that you could have a conversation about slavery but not be talking about racial equality, but that's effectively what they did.
0: I had a question which you kind of answered there because you, you say something in the book which is just chef's kiss, which is that any country that calls itself the United States is protesting too much. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I kind of wonder when I look at the war, because we live in a time now where compromise is not really a dumb thing. People aren't really prepared to compromise much. You know, we live in a time of extremes of like QAnon and Antifa. And the idea of there being compromised between those two groups is a nonsense. So I've always thought that perhaps the South's busy rebuilding everything it can rebuild in terms of, you know, let's try and bring as much of the old world back as we can. And the North just... Compromises too much. The North steps back and says, Well, we killed loads of them. They've had enough. Let's step away from it.
1: That's basically what happened, right? It was like, well, we can't keep doing this. And so the North was like, well, we got what we could. And then they pulled back. And so there were many who were outraged and saw that as a total betrayal of the promises made to Black people, which it was, both literal promises and figurative promises. Mm. But there were many more white people who were like, well, you know what? We fought a war. What more do you want from us? And they became very focused on the project of making money which, you know, was really the post-war, the great revolution in American life after the war was about the rise of modern capitalism. And so the great African-American historian W.E.B. Du Bois said, and I, I quote this right at the beginning of my book, he said, you know, the South was, words to the effect of, the South was only interested in justifying its actions and the North wasn't interested in anything except making money. Yeah, And that's why they were willing to rewrite the story to the extent that they did.
0: Talking about money making and myth making, let's let's talk about Hollywood because Hollywood has long portrayed itself as this incredibly progressive place, this incredibly like liberal place. You know, much is made of the fact that Hattie Daniels was given an Oscar, but she wasn't welcome at the premiere.
1: No,
0: she wasn't, or or
1: at the Oscar ceremony. Yeah. So, so yeah, so Hattie McDaniel she plays Scarlett's nurse, who's called Mammy in the film, and she brilliant performance is one of the things that I think keeps the film from having completely dated is Hattie McDaniel's subversive performance as Scarlett's first enslaved, and then kind of but as her devoted kind of surrogate mother figure, and McDaniel sends up the stereotypes of the of what we call the the minstrel right, the minstrel figure. Mm. But she also totally humanizes her. And um, and it's a brilliant, brilliant performance. It's hilarious, too. And very mordant and undercutting. And you have the sense that she's the only one who knows what's actually going on in in this absolutely silly place, you know as you say, she was not welcome to the premiere. Uh, none of the black cast was because it was held in Atlanta, which was segregated at the end of 1939. The theater was whites only. And so they were just not invited, right? You know, one of the things I point out in the book is that, you know, this is literally, a, a, this is in order to tell a story that insists that nothing bad happened to America because of slavery and gone with the wind says nothing bad happened. yeah, And it's all fine now. There are no bad consequences here at all. And literally black people can't get into the into yeah, the film. Incredible. And that's what I mean by that distinction between slavery and racial inequality and mm-hmm. racism. They see them as two kind of separate problems, or they don't even see racism as a problem at that point, right? It seems that seems normal. Slavery is a problem. And then when McDaniel was nominated for an Oscar and was going to go on to become the first African American actor of either sex to win, the ceremony was being held in LA. But that venue, the Coconut Grove uh, at that point, was also segregated. And sometimes we have this idea that racial segregation only pertained in the South, but that's absolutely not the case. So what was called the Color Bar went across the United States and is a good example of the ways in which the white Northerners were prepared to embrace all of this stuff. Um, And pretend they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. And so David Selznick, who was the producer of Gone with the Wind, had to pull strings with the owner of the Coconut Grove to get Hattie McDaniel into the ceremony, but they refused to seat her at the same table with the white cast. And they insisted on segregating her as an individual within the room by putting her at a, literally a table against the wall while the rest of the white cast was in a big round table in the middle of the room. So you don't get anything that more it literalizes and physicalizes yeah. segregation. Than that, and that was in LA. So as you say, you know, supposedly the liberal bastion, mm. certainly the north, but no, you know. And the other example I always use is that people talk about the Cotton Club in the 1920s in Harlem, and everybody's like, "Oh, mixed race paradise." And if you've seen um, Baz Luhrmann's *The Great Gatsby* from 2013, yeah. he has these mixed race speakeasies where everybody's hanging out and black and white are dancing together. Did not happen. It's absolute BS. The Cotton Club in Harlem was yeah. segregated. Yeah. It was whites only for customers. You could work there yeah. if you were black. So you could be a server or you could be the entertainment, but you couldn't be a paying customer. No way, no how. It was whites only. But, you know, the the thing about the myth of, of Hollywood as a liberal bastion is that Hollywood is first and foremost, always a commercial enterprise. Yeah. and you know sam goldwyn famously said if you want to if you want to send a message call western union right <laughs> he didn't think this was about politics he thought this was about money making yeah. and now selznick was interested in art and he he was one of the more visionary filmmakers who, who well, at least he wanted to make it classy he certainly cared about that and you know you could argue the toss about did he conceive of it as an art form yet but was certainly thinking in those ways and not of it simply as commodity to sell, Mm. but the vast majority of studio heads just saw it as a commodity to sell. And it it could say whatever it wanted, as long as it didn't screw up their business. What's interesting about the debates about Gone with the Wind, even at the time that it was made, as I talk about in the book, there was a very, very, uh, there was a big controversy, a very active fight about whether the n-word would be spoken in the film and the argument was about whether the film would get boycotted and that was the leverage right so there were a lot of black people objecting to it on the on a moral basis and and pointing out that it would that it gave gave rise to violence but then there were white people arguing against it in hollywood but on the basis that it might lead to a boycott and nobody wanted that and then selznick was arguing for it on the basis of verisimilitude. But he also didn't want, he said, he recognized that there could be parallels with racial bigotry and with fascism in Europe because he was himself Jewish, the son of immigrants from what is now Lithuania. And so he was explicit at the time, saying, I don't want any depiction of the Klan or of white supremacist violence or using the N-word to give any kind of credence to fascism. And I, you know, he said, I'm aware of this and I'm thinking about this. So He was talking about it with people trying to figure out what the right thing to do was. So he was thinking about the politics and the morality of it. But what finally decided him was censorship. The censorship board of Hollywood, which was called the Hayes Code at that time, because it was worried about boycotts, said, you know, we don't want you to use the N-word. And he also wanted Rep Butler to be able to say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn as he walked out of the story and out of his life. And nobody had ever said damn on film, at least not since the code era. And ultimately, Selznick was given a choice. It was a literal trade-off, and he could have one or the other. And so he sacrificed the N-word, which he wanted to use in the name of realism, that Rep Butler could say damn on his way out the door. So he could have one bad word, but not the
0: other one. I suppose that panned out for him in the long term, given how famous that that expression is. Yeah,
1: certainly in terms of the film's longevity, if it had the N word, it it, yeah.
0: you know,
1: it would be it would be an even it's already there are debates about whether we should be watching. Yeah. It or not, but if it was throwing the N word around the way the novel does, I don't think there would be any question.
0: My last question for you. And I'm sorry, it's a big one. <laughs> The second bit of your book title, you know, The Lies America Tells Itself, and America is an absolute master of myth-making, be it, you know, how the West was won, or that slavery wasn't that bad, or Robert E. Lee was just fighting for Virginia. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why my favourite character, character I put that in quotes, outside of Clara Barton, who is amazing, is Ulysses S. Grant, because the fact that he continued his life after the war, he went on to be a president, it meant he wasn't eulogised in the way that the others were. So he feels like a man <laughs> rather than a myth. Yeah. And his flaws are very obvious and flawed people are, are really interesting. Yeah. We all make myths. America makes more myths than most, I would say. Why is that? And then who pays the price of it?
1: Yeah. So I, what I say is that I think that we're certainly more susceptible to myths than many other societies. And maybe we make more than most. That proposition could also be accused of being a kind of exceptionalist version of America. As yeah. you know, oh, America always thinks it's special. It even makes more myths yeah. than everybody else. But I think it probably does. And, um, and I think that the reasons for that are complex, as you, as you imply. But one of the important ones is that because it is, was, and is a nation explicitly founded on a society, explicitly founded on a series of ideas, and, and that didn't organically develop, at least at the beginning, out mm. of just proximity and language and religion and shared cultures and all of that kind of thing it became very dependent on those ideas and those ideas have to get transmitted through story. The history has to keep proving the truth of the story that you tell yourself. And once you start blending history and story, you are in the realm of myth. And so America just keeps doing that. It's history has to keep proving the truth of the story, but the story isn't true. And the history is very far from the story. So the further we get away from it, the more more drastic the myth-making has to become, the more it has to become an outright lie. And then, As I'm arguing, I think that the the further that those two diverge, the history and the story, Mm. um, the more likely violence is to break out because you can't make sense of the contradictions the story that you're telling yourself is not the reality that is in front of you. And and that means that people are inhabiting different realities, different understandings of where they've come from. And so, you know, I think that, you know, everybody kept being so shocked when when Trump was creating these alternate realities. And that was the phrase that we used about his presence. He was like, how can he create this alternate reality? And everybody falls for it. And he just announces that the weather followed a different pattern and everybody agrees with him. And they say, <laughs> you know, did something a storm didn't do? and it's And it's ludicrous. And how did this happen so quickly? And I think America's always been inhabiting an alternate reality because, you know, I go back to that, found, that foundational contradiction where we claim to be a nation of freedom with slavery at the heart of it. Well, that's an alternate reality. If you say yeah. a nation based on freedom and you are literally domesticating slavery while, yeah. you're, while you're saying that yeah. and, and you're telling a story about freedom that literally pushes slavery out of the language of
0: that story mm. and that's the reality. And, and also just to add, women... Yeah, without women. women were not equal either at that point, were they? No, certainly not, and still aren't, as we can
1: see from the events of summer. <laughs> yeah, in any doubt? Exactly. There is a constant disjunction between the claims that are being made and the and and the political realities that underlie the claims. And as I say, that 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 divergence is a gap that, as we can see, kind of breeds violence.
0: Oh, your book is so fantastic, Sarah. I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed it so much. I went on to read your book about Marilyn Monroe, who, yeah, 60 years in August, wasn't it, that she's been gone? Yeah. What what do you you think her legacy is? That's a tough question to end on. Yeah, I'm
1: like, that's a different, that's my, my head has to be in a different place. I think her legacy is, we were just going there. her, Her legacy is about women and agency. Yeah. Her legacy is about women's ability to control the narrative about themselves and to create their own identity the way that men are permitted to, to reinvent the way that men are permitted to, and to define their own persona, to define their own legacy, to define, even in her case, their own career, frankly, to just get the respect that you earned. And then, you know, how sexuality and femininity plays Mm -hmm. into that. So, you know, hers is a legacy really
0: about about women's sex and power. Well. She's such a fantastic actress as well. Last year, I watched all about Ave, which yeah. I'd never seen before oh, it's terrific and she's in it for she, i don't know five minutes and she's incredible she's fantastic in it she's hilarious, yeah, but, but of
1: course, everybody thinks that she was just playing herself there and or at least they used to I mean now I think yeah. she gets a little more credit for for the cleverness of that performance but her timing is impeccable. Yeah. And her ability to deliver a comic line from the beginning was always just perfect. And again, she, she was never given credit for being a comic actress. She was just treated as a joke. And she was like, I'm not a joke. I'm a comedian. Yeah. It's a difference. And they couldn't see the difference. Literally, you know, that was the last thing she said to her last interviewer. She ran after Richard Merriman a couple of days before she died and had given this long interview and said, please, whatever you do, please don't make me a joke. Um, That was the thing that upset her the most. And so, as I say, you know, I think her her legacy is a story about respect and and the lack thereof that we give to to women and and the limits of their agency.
0: Great answer. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. The Wrath to Come is available to buy now. I can't remember what your book on Marilyn Monroe is called. Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. That's right. The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe also available. Next time you write a book, please come back.
1: (laughs) I will. Standard issue for all women.